Hi, this is Melody Wilding, author of Trust Yourself, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Melody Wilding. Melody is an executive coach for sensitive strivers. She's a licensed social worker and professor of human behavior. She's named one of Business Insider's most innovative coaches, and her clients include CEOs, leaders, and managers of top Fortune 500 companies such as Google, HP, Facebook, Twitter, IBM, and more. Her work has been featured by the New York Times, Oprah Magazine, NBC, and dozens of other high-profile publications. Melody lives outside of New York City and is here to talk about her book, Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking, and Channel Your Emotions for Success at work. Welcome, Melody. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you. Tell me, Melody, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? My parents, hands down. The book is dedicated to them. And that is for the reason that they showed me the definition of hard work. They were both small business owners, multiple small businesses, and really planted that entrepreneurial bug in me and were the ones that taught me to trust myself. What type of businesses were they? And did you have a chance to be recruited or to work in them growing up? Oh, yes. And I'm laughing because my name is Melody in part because my family loves music. And and so we, when I was much younger, owned uh, disc jockey businesses doing weddings and company parties and, and things like that. And as I got older, we owned a retail music store. So records, tapes, CDs. Think of High Fidelity. If you've ever seen the movie or the, read the book High Fidelity, pretty much like that. And yes, I spent many weekends at the record store filing CDs, helping customers. And again, I think it taught me the value of hard work, structure, and the idea that work in life, you can have this blend. Very grateful for those experiences. That's interesting. So it was something where the structure actually was reassuring to be able to have all of the stray records and CDs. And it's, I'm smiling because you know what records are. Yes. And, and there was a satisfaction to having the work be done for the day. Did you get a, do you look back on that and look for that type of reassurance and satisfaction that comes with having things done for the day? I do. And I think what was really interesting about, especially being in the retail music business, is that it's really a combination of creativity and structure, creativity and business. You have the music side where you're dealing with people's taste and preferences and the the artistry of the music. But then you have the business side where you have margins and do you have enough stock in and what are we doing in terms of promotion and marketing. And I see that in how I just in in how I think I have that duality of being someone who is sensitive, but also very driven and detailed. And so I think that is what also called me to it. And certainly something I bring forth today and in all of my coaching is really combining that more emotional, intuitive side with 
structure and detail orientation. How did you get your start in coaching? And who did you particularly want to work with when you realized that was something that was going to be different than what you trained for? Because you went to Columbia to get your LSW, didn't you? That's correct. Correct. Great research. Yes. So my background is in psychology and social work. And my undergrad, I did psychological research on looking at how emotions affect how we remember events and affect our perceptions and received advisement from those around me that if you want to go into practicing with people one-on-one, because I loved research, but it's a little removed from working with people and real life aspects that are actionable, which is why I pursued my MSW. And in my MSW training, there is a high emphasis on personal empowerment, on solution-focused methods, which is basically coaching. I didn't realize it at the time, but when I came out of school, part of my story is that I, I actually started coaching on the side to start paying off my student loans and I fell in love with it, fell in love with working with people. And at the time, I was working with the very, very first online therapy company. And this was way before the ones that exist today, many years ago. And so the people who were willing to use it were executives, were tech company founders, early adopters who were comfortable using the new technology. And that was where I really found a love for working with people who were highly career-driven and oriented, who were very high-achieving, but who were also deep thinkers and feelers, who took things personally sometimes, who maybe put too much pressure on themselves to succeed. And so that was where I I started discovering this intersection of the ambition and the high-achieving piece and the high-sensitivity, and really then part laid that into my own coaching practice as it exists today. One of the things you did is you actually have branded the term sensitive striver. It's something that you're known for. You've coined the term and it so clearly fits your approach. Can you define what that term means and how people would recognize that they had traits or characteristics of a sensitive striver? Sensitive strivers are high achievers who are also more highly sensitive. So they are driven, they are career oriented, they set high goals, but they also think and feel everything more deeply. So what we're talking about here is about one in five people, about 20% or more of the population that has actual brain differences that lead them to be more attuned to their own emotions and to sense more deeply those of the people around them and subtle changes in the environment. So being a sensitive striver is a tremendous strength. You're observant, you're perceptive, you're empathetic skills we need now more than ever before to be effective in, in business and in leadership. But many of us were not given the tools to understand these qualities or to leverage them effectively. And without that, it can lead to overthinking everything, burnout, taking feedback too personally or avoiding it altogether. So it's not uncommon. And this is what I see with clients all the time is that sensitive strivers rise quickly in their careers, but they also they pay high internal price. They face a near daily battle with stress, emotional overwhelm and self-doubt as a result of of how they're wired. That's interesting because they have these strengths that are needed to bring people together and help remind people about the impact that organizations have and the way that people work together effectively. Yet if they don't have, as you said, very astutely, the tools to effectively deal with these strengths that they have, they become weaknesses. And it's very easy to turn around, but 
left unassisted, they're burdened by the nagging self-doubt, the disappointment, the isolation that prevents them from making their fullest contribution. What if you, is there a difference with someone who's a sensitive striver in being able to connect and make an impact through video, for instance? We're in the midst of the pandemic lockdown and it's changed a lot of the dynamics in the workplace. What have you noticed from your clients and reports that you've that have come into you about how sensitive strivers are taking advantage of this or falling behind as a result of working remotely. Yes, especially earlier on in the pandemic. And, and as we've gone on, I've, I've seen this transform in different ways. But because sensitive strivers tend to be more emotionally in tune, they are very and have been through the pandemic, been very effective at keeping tabs on emotionally, psychologically, how are people doing? on the team, really at the beginning of the pandemic, really checking in with people to help them navigate the change and uncertainty and all of the emotions that came up. But as we have gone on, and I'm sure you have seen this, Bill, the rates of burnout are startling in the 90% of people who are just feeling that the pandemic has negatively affected their engagement and their well-being. And the sensitive strivers I work with have been more adept at really being bringing people back on board, reviving their morale because they can sense when someone is disengaging. They have they can create psychological safety to say, "Hey, what's going on here and how do we get you back on track?" And so that has been uh, a godsend to many of their their teams, their organizations during this time. Let me just share two things that occur to me as you say that. One is that many people have been told you need to check in. So you have to spend time at the beginning or end of a, a scheduled meeting and ask people, how are you? And so many times that I've heard from individuals, as well as many people have told me, that people say the question, but they don't listen to the answer. Where someone who's a sense of striver asks the question and really is equipped, their strengths come to the fore and people feel that they can establish a connection. What's your perspective on that? When people ask, how are you? There are different things that happen, aren't there, Melody? Sure. And sometimes I think we're in our own heads, kind of thinking about the next task we have to get onto, the email we have to answer. We ask, how are you? But we're not actively engaged and listening, where a sensitive striver deeply wants to know what's going on. How do I help you solve this problem? They have that high drive for helpfulness and dedication for people. And so that really makes a difference in helping people feel seen and heard and validated in a in an authentic way. That's great. The And it's important for people to recognize there are people on your team, within your department, within your company who have this skill. And if you don't know, it means that you're probably not a sensitive striver who they are. And all you need to do is ask who's the most, who's in touch with where the team's temperature is? What would be another couple of questions that someone who doesn't know what the temperature of the team is could ask in order to not only identify that information, but also recognize who are the people who have these skills, strengths, and traits that make them valuable in this way? So we talked about that high level of empathy, being emotionally in touch. You also want to be looking for your deep thinkers. Who are the people that need time to process or who pause before they act? That's a hallmark of sensitivity is really observing your surroundings, assessing, and then acting. So who are your folks that maybe really do their best when they have some time to sit with an idea who may feel flustered by being put on the spot in the, in a meeting because they, they have some trouble thinking on their feet, they need to reflect. But who tends to be your brilliant critical thinkers? Who are the folks that are really synthesizing different ideas, who are anticipating eventualities? I'll tell you a story about one of my clients 
science. I'll call him Jim. He was a research and development director at a pharmaceutical company. And the his company was seeking to acquire a smaller firm. And Jim went to the CEO and the COO and said, I do not think we're ready for this. It's going to cause a huge backlog. We do not have the right technology. He was anticipating. He was five steps ahead of everybody else because as a sensitive striver, he had that ability. He had that cognitive processing power to see that. And he was being much more deliberate about the decision. The CEO and the COO said, no, you know what? It's fine. We're going through with it. They went through with the acquisition. It was a debacle. It was a mess exactly as Jim had anticipated. And what Jim said to me is the CEO told him, if I had only listened to you, I would have saved my reputation because this caused a huge stir, a huge black mark on the company and the industry. Folks left. There was a mass exodus. And the CEO said that to Jim and said, I wish I had more people like you that were skilled at seeing those eventualities, at spotting those gaps. It would have saved my reputation. It would have saved us a lot of very valuable time and money. That's a huge problem that occurred. And what I'm interested in is you said that Jim had the cognitive abilities to do I think he also had the affective abilities and tool set in order to do this. What additional skills or strengths do people who are sensitive strivers need to deliberately look to build into their repertoire so that they can be as effective as possible, not only personally, but also interpersonally and speaking up to management like that? Yes, foundationally is confidence. And that is why the book is called Trust Yourself. That is the core message of the book is that you need to believe in the value of what you bring to the table and your own judgments, ideas, and opinions. And too many times, sensitive strivers have internalized the idea that sensitivity is a weakness, that you shouldn't show emotion or care so much. And those narratives that you're not okay as you are, you need to change, you need to be different in order to be a successful leader. And those narratives then dictate our actions. We hold ourselves back. We don't raise our hand for a project or speak up in a meeting. And so foundationally, what I work on with clients is starting to shift their beliefs, how they regard themselves, their confidence and their self-esteem so that their actions become more effective. Put. I think that I'd like to go back to a topic, the burnout, because it's something that is so widespread. And I think that many people are not, if they haven't encountered it, they just think that it's great that people are responding at 11 or 12 at night to emails when that's a huge warning sign that people are not setting effective boundaries. What is it that, what advice would you give people who are overseeing people who are sensitive strivers as well as other people on their team, but just who have lost that sense of boundary because we're working from home and we haven't really established that the way that going to an office gives us that routine and that that external boundary? Yes. And this goes back to your earlier question about what have I seen? How have I seen the pandemic affect sensitive strivers? And that lack of boundaries is such a huge one that now because there's no formal or concrete separation between work and home, their dedication, their sense of responsibility is just on overdrive and they're working all the time. So what I would be encouraging people, you hit the nail on the head that as a leader, your behavior set the tone for the organization. You are setting the norms. So you need to be looking at how am I complicit in creating these conditions. But more importantly, what I would be encouraging people is to specifically look for where you feel the emotion of resentment. Resentment is a very powerful emotional signal that you have let a situation go on too long without addressing it, that you have let someone or something violate what 
is most important to you, your core values. Perhaps, for example, you said you would help a colleague out with a project and it was only supposed to be two weeks. Now it's been two months and you're still doing it and you're feeling resentful towards that. That is a sign that you need to set some limits. So interesting and so widely applicable. So every business leader listening, whatever you feel is resentment, don't stew in it. Use as a signal that you need to have conversations and break that down collaboratively with people to find out, do we continue with this? Where do we put an end to it? How do we change it so it's not leading us both to angry, unresourceful places? You actually, thank you, Melody. You also talk about this a great deal with one of some of the wonderful examples and case studies throughout your book. When Travis was at a choice point. And Travis was a hospital administrator who was doing consulting as a side hustle to see if he could actually make a go of it as a living. And what had happened with Travis is he was also feeling that kind of overwhelm because he was taking on more and more work and was eating into his life, his social life. And he was losing that balance that he had and it was interfering with his ability. Luckily, he had you as a coach, as a sounding board in order to check in and figure out how to make this decision. When he was feeling overwhelmed, where he had proven that he could earn enough money consulting to supplement, to um, substitute for his income, he was at a choice point, whether to go all in as a consultant or whether to continue to do it as a side hustle and use it as a way to keep fresh and learning and use it in beneficial ways to supplement what he was doing as a full-time hospital administrator. How does that example illustrate what happens to uh, to sensitive strivers in this type of situation during the pandemic? Yeah, and uh, thank you for sharing so much detail about the story. And I think Travis's example really exemplifies what happens to so many of us when, especially during the pandemic, where we spend so much more time with ourselves in our own heads and we create narratives about what everyone else is doing. And particular, particularly in Travis's case, he was really falling victim to shoulds. I should be growing my business to this amount of money. Look at my colleagues on LinkedIn who are getting venture funding for their businesses. And he was constantly consuming more information about the track he should be on rather than thinking deeply and turning inward to say, what do I want here? And that happens to sensitive strivers all the time. Paranoia is such a huge consequence that I've seen as a result of this pandemic where sensitive strivers, because there's much more ambiguity and uncertainty, our mind fills the gaps with a negative interpretation of my boss hasn't responded to me. That must mean I'm getting fired or they were upset with my presentation. And that's one major uh, consequence that I've seen with the pandemic is that we're filling that vacuum with negative stories and interpretations rather than and turning externally to look at what other people are doing rather than listening to ourselves. I think that one of the the, the feed-in emotions or drives that creates that anxiety and makes it difficult for people to stay true to the center is FOMO, the fear of missing out. How does that play? And in particular, with people who are sensitive strivers, how does that affect them differently than people who just are ordinarily exposed to it? Fear of missing out is powerful. And for sensitive strivers, it really plays on our sense of vigilance. We have a strong attunement to everything that's going on around us. And so we're picking up more on, oh, I'm missing out 
out on this opportunity and that opportunity, whereas other people may not be as perceptive to even realize that's happening. But because we have such a heightened awareness in ourselves, it creates a sense of scarcity, which means we react from a fear place. We, with FOMO, we may people please. We may say yes to events, projects, situations, just because we want that other person to be happy or we want to appear likable in their eyes. We do it because we think we should do it. It will make us look like a good boss, colleague, business partner. And so that can all really lead us astray and lead us to this place where we're not only exhausted and feel burned out, but so far from having any core sense of ourselves and how we want to define our days. You become so reactive to everything that's going on around you that you're not intentional. Melly, you open your book, Trust Yourself, with a story that was your, it was the point where it was your breaking point. It was your wake up call that you needed to do something different in your life. And it was simply an, it was an invitation to be part of one of your close friends' weddings. Can you take us back to that point in your life and describe what it was you were going through and how you evaluated, weighed, and made a decision about what to do at that point? Yes. All of my life, I was your A plus gold star good girl. So live to exceed expectations in everything that I do. And I, at that point, when the wedding weekend came up, had followed advice from well-meaning people around me who said, you can't make money doing social work. You should go into healthcare or technology, something that's going to be more stable. And as I said earlier, luckily, I continued coaching on the side. But I was working an extremely demanding job in Manhattan. I was commuting several hours a day. I was really stretching myself in every possible capacity. And this wedding weekend came up. And of course, I cherished having time with my friends. But I could not get past the fear of the voices in my head that were telling me, really, you're going to go away for an entire weekend when you could use that to catch up on work and get ahead. You have so many things you're doing. It seems to be irresponsible to take that time off, don't you think? What are people going to think of you? And I had this battle within me, the one side of me that so desperately wanted to go and spend time with my friends and this other side, this inner critic side. And ultimately, the the inner critic one out. The fear and insecurity drove my decision making. And that was really a rock bottom moment for me where I saw how unbalanced my the various aspects of my sensitivity and ambition had become and that something needed to change. Yeah. I think a lot of people listening to this have that ambition and that drive. And when it extends into impacting the quality of our lives, we're no longer working to live, but we're living to work, that it becomes that kind of toxic impact on our lives rather than a strength of using that conscientiousness and our talents to make contributions at work. Is that how you see it now? 100%. I didn't have the language for it earlier. And throughout working with my clients over the past 10 years, I realized that they didn't either. And so part of the efforts in writing the book, one one of the things that was most enlightening was landing on the concept of being a sensitive striver since it is a new term and really dimensionalizing the various aspects of our sensitivity so that we have more of a, a roadmap, a prioritization framework to figure out, well, what aspect of being a sensitive striver do I need to give attention to first? Is it my emotionality, managing my emotions and getting that better under control? Is it my sense of responsibility where I'm trying to be everything to everyone and 
I'm the one that is put last. And so that I have found has been extremely powerful in my own work, but also for readers and clients. Melody, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? Let's do this. So at the beginning of the interview, I asked you who's someone who influenced and inspired you growing up, and you pointed to your parents who were entrepreneurs and in the music industry. This is going to be a great question. When you were a teenager, Melody, what's a song that you loved? I was your classic emo kid. And so I am going to go with Dashboard Confessional, hands down. How does that go? Oh boy. Hands down, this is the best day I can ever remember. In your work of getting and reaching people who are sensitive strivers, what have you found to be the best way to connect with them in order to make presentations, work with executives within companies, and also let them know about the courses that you have that can help them work through these issues and be more effective in their work. Yes. Creating valuable content first and foremost, writing, disseminating articles has been a a huge part of how I've grown my audience and my business. Writing for Forbes, I write regularly, Harvard Business Review, for example, on Medium, I have quite a large following. And so all of that, just getting that content out there, but making sure the quality of that content is differentiated from anything else that's out there, that it is highly actionable and concrete And nothing makes me happier than when people reach out to me and say, my colleagues were talking about this in our work channel, and we all just found it so valuable. And to know that people are not only using it and sharing it is the highest compliment. It's particularly interesting to me if there's a tool or system that you use to help you stay on track with doing all of the different writing projects that you're working on, working with individual clients, as well as developing programs and giving presentations to companies. Is there some method, tool, or technique that you use that you find particularly valuable? Valuable. Myself and my team are huge users of Asana's task management uh, and project management software for keeping all of the various interlocking parts and, and projects we have going on organized and, and on track. Yeah. What would you say is the best business advice you've received since being on your own, since building a company of in order to serve people who are sensitive strivers? Ooh, I think I would say you want to be the boss that you never had. As an entrepreneur, it's really easy to be a really horrible boss to yourself, to work yourself to the bone every single hour, to be a jerk about what you didn't accomplish and bad feedback. And I do not remember who exactly said it to me, but making sure that you are a good boss to yourself. And complete the following sentence for me. I know I'm succeeding when I know I'm succeeding when my clients are succeeding. And what does that look like? Or what do you notice about it when they're succeeding? There's internal and external results. Internally, for me, the most meaningful progress someone can make is that they feel a greater sense of confidence, inner peace, steadiness in their work. Externally, that can look like I have had clients in the past year with the pandemic who received skip level promotions, bonuses in the six figures. And so it's really those internal shifts that create external results. Fabulous. Now, what's the most important habit, skill, or belief that you've eliminated in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure and personal satisfaction? Ooh, such a good question. The one that I've eliminated is the flip side of one I have added, which is being at my desk all day. And I I work from home even before the pandemic. And the pandemic really highlighted how it was very easy to go a couple of days or even an entire week.
week without not going outside. And that became unacceptable at some point. And really taking the time every single day to get out for an hour long walk and be moving, even just getting up from my desk and doing a few laps around my apartment here makes a huge difference. Do you do that by putting it on your calendar or do you set your phone to beep or something? What do you do? Great question. Most of the time it's by managing my calendar. So I end the day at a certain time and I know I can get out there and take my sunset walk. Fabulous. Now, Melly, let's get back to the question of emotions at work. There are emotions that are encouraged and welcomed at work. There are emotions that are not at all welcomed and people feel very hesitant to express them or even to experience them during the workday. And there are some that are not necessarily positive emotions or contribute to a positive workforce, but they're tolerated because of the role of the person, their personality, or the position they hold. What do you say to people who are rethinking this? Because one of the opportunities this pandemic has given us is a chance to really rethink how we're going to interact at work, how we're going to build relationships with others. Now that we're in this position of being able to take advantage of this opportunity, what can you share for people to think about the role of emotions at work? I would say that you can't have emotional intelligence without emotion regulation, which means that we do have to be cognizant of a a valuable leadership skill is having mastery over how you internally experience and then how you externally express your emotional reactions. And so part of that, I'm always coaching my clients to think about how can you respond and think about this situation in a way that is going to make you proud, is going to leave you in integrity with how you acted here and how you performed. And I think that's very powerful to detach from how am I going to be perceived? What will people think about me? But to think about how do I want to conduct myself here? And what does that look like for me to have mastery over my reactions? I want to just add to that based on something that I've read in Trust Yourself, which is how you describe emotions as the weather. And the weather could be beautiful and sunny, and that helps lift how we feel about things. Or it could be stormy and cloudy and and cut off options that we have for doing certain things. However, we can't change it. So we've got to figure out how to tact and make adjustments based upon what's going on in the weather. Same way our emotions. We may not necessarily have the control over what we feel at a particular moment in time, but we can choose what to do with it once we are aware of it. And I think that goes in line with what you're saying here. We need to be aware of our emotions, but also know how to regulate them, know how to express them, know when, when how to share them at work in order to be more effective. Is that in line? 100%, right. It's about awareness and it's not being so overly fused with your reactions that they completely dictate and control your behavior. What's an example of a technique you've used working with an executive that's helped him or her become more able to regulate his or her emotions and become effective as a result? Yes. So I can think of one executive in particular who used one of the strategies in the book. This person's name was Angela. She was a executive at a bank. She was in a a very high visibility role dealing with clients. And it was she was under a lot of pressure often and in very contentious meetings where her emotionality would come out because sensitive strivers, whenever we feel put under pressure, we become more overstimulated, more overwhelmed much more easily. And so for her, we worked on a strategy that I share in the book called grounding, which is really about regulating your nervous system response so that you can regulate your emotions because really you have to regulate your physiology before you can manage your psychology. 
And so grounding can be anything from deep breathing, belly breaths, controlled breathing. The Navy SEALs box breathing method is very popular. But even just feeling your feet in the floor or grasping your hands and letting them go for a few seconds at the time, all of that helps you channel your physiological energy more effectively so that your emotional reaction doesn't become as intense. That's so well said. And I'm so glad that everyone listening will realize that there are techniques to help us ground our physicality so that we master our physiology in order to become even more effective with our psychology. Melody, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. You talked about the inspiration of your parents and what you learned working in the, their music store growing up and how it's a fusion of both creativity and business that you bring with you even into your work today. You talk about how you can recognize some of the people who are sensitive strivers, a term that you coined simply by looking for who are the deep thinkers in work. And typically, they'll be the ones who can have that perspective and help bring people together. We talked about how foundationally, it's important to have confidence in yourself and in your ability to contribute and express yourself that'll make the difference so that you don't stay wrapped up in whatever it is that you're feeling that may be overwhelming you at the time and preventing you from getting the word out. And as leaders, we set the norms. So it's important that everyone listening realizes that whatever we're doing in order to encourage or discourage working beyond boundaries or connecting with each other authentically is setting the tone. And we could make that choice and choose a new direction that leads to a better situation. So Melody Wilding, for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you again for joining me on my quest for the best. I had such a wonderful time. Thank you so much for having me. Melody, before we say goodbye for now, tell me where is it that we could go to find out more about you and your work online? My website is the best place to connect, and that's at MelodyWilding.com. Melody, we're going to link to your website, your social media, and ways to buy your book on Amazon and other booksellers so that people who listen to this episode can go to the show notes and keep up with what's going on in your life and with your work. So Melody Wilding, author of Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. I want to thank you once again. It's been such a pleasure having you on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.